he was highly intelligent, he was articulate, he was clever, cunning, and he loved the idea of making easy money. He was the only European, I believe, ever to break out of the Bangkok Hilton. He would set up very complex arrangements so that they would fly into the Golden Triangle, which is highly suspicious, pick up drugs, take them to somewhere neutral like Holland, and then fly them out again. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. This week, we look at the story of David McMillan, alias McVillan. This is the Melbourne private schoolboy who used his sheer intelligence, his rat cunning and his excellent contacts to make himself one of the biggest drug importers in Australia in his early 20s. Macmillan's father was a World War II army officer who worked at the BBC in London and became a leading British television executive. His mother was a beautiful Australian woman who worked in the media in London, fell in love with the dashing BBC man, married him, had little David and a little girl, and then mummy and daddy broke up and David and his sister come back to Australia with mum to Melbourne, where she took up with uh, her second husband and then a series of very interesting chaps, including the leading abortionist of the day, Dr. Troop. So this young Macmillan was brought up in this sort of bohemian atmosphere in Melbourne. He lived in more or less luxury, but it was always dependent a little bit on who mum's latest boyfriend was. And this included people like those associated with Sir Donald Campbell's land speed record when he came to Australia in the early 60s with Bluebird to do the land speed record on Lake Eyre. Two million pounds or more has gone into the jet-powered car and the preparation, and 70 British firms have contributed to the cost. Macmillan's mother was associated with that group and I think went out to Lake Eyre. So young Macmillan was exposed to all sorts of fascinating international people in a sort of a vaguely James Bond sort of lifestyle. So he was highly intelligent, he was articulate, he was clever, cunning, and he loved the idea of making easy money all his life. His sister tells me that indeed when he was a little boy he was offered, you know, a few shillings to weed the garden path and he promptly went next door with the money and offered half of it to the kid next door to weed the garden path. Always his idea of how to get along was to get somebody else to do the hard work and put the money in your pocket. And indeed, when he went to Caulfield Grammar as a teenager, he was remembered by others who went to school with him as a charming fellow, but very naughty. Uh, he was at Caulfield Grammar the year above Nick Cave, and indeed he was expelled from Caulfield Grammar in mysterious circumstances, probably to do with drugs. He went off to Taylor's College, where all the scallywag kids used to go in those days. If you got kicked out of private schools or any schools, you could go to Taylor's College in the city and pay the money and, and do your studies there. And in fact, he went there a year apart from Alphonse Gangatano, who would become a gunman and later be became shot extremely dead. Macmillan survived, but would end up spending half his adult life in jail, which is an interesting story in itself. Young David was up for anything, providing it wasn't hard work, which was why he got the gig reading the Peters Junior News on commercial television. This was a, a little TV show sponsored by the ice cream maker, Peters. The best ice cream. It's made by Peters. They got kids that were really good at reading the news and presentable to compete in order to read the news on air, live, and David McMillan won the slot and did it. It became very well known around Melbourne among his peer group for doing it. And of course, he could have used that to get a, a career in the media and it could have been a starting point for almost any career he wanted. 
What he did after he left school was uh, he didn't get into hard work. He got into advertising, and he could have been very good at advertising. He was a natural filmmaker. He was a natural scriptwriter. He was a natural performer, and he probably could have been very good at any aspect in that field, in advertising, in public relations, but instead he chose the dark side. I think really through drug use mainly. He hooked up with a fellow called Michael Sullivan. Now, Michael Sullivan was a brilliant schoolboy athlete. And Michael Sullivan's coach told me years ago that had he not injured his knee and got on drugs to counter the pain, that he would have ended up winning medals at the Munich Olympics. But he drifted away from athletics and he drifted into the orbit of David McMillan and they became... Macmillan and Sullivan, importers of interesting stuff. Now, theoretically, they were importing furniture, but in fact, they were importing heroin. And what Macmillan did now, this is a pre, this is just before computers sort of hit. So it was still a world which I know people find hard to believe, a world in those days of basically hard copy records. There were paper records of everything. And what Macmillan did, because he was highly intelligent and willing to work very hard when it was to do something bad, what he would do was go to newspaper offices and look up the old death notices from the 50s and he would find dead babies that had died in the 50s around the time he'd been born himself in that era. And he'd find, you know, John Smith, um, born, died within a matter of months, baby. And he would get a few of these names and he would go off to the uh, birth, deaths and marriages and he would get an extract of the birth certificates. He would pretend to be that person. He was a, an early adopter of stealing identities, and it was fairly easy to do. And he would then be able to open bank accounts and set up entire IDs, and, of course, he would then get passports. So he would get not false passports. These were real passports issued by the passport office, and they had his picture on them, but they had other people's names, dead people's names. These were the perfect cover. He would use these passports for himself, and he would also set them up for a network of couriers that he groomed to bring in drugs. And he had all these sort of smooth middle-class couriers who would bring drugs into the country, flying first class or business class with their, their perfect passports. And he would set up very complex arrangements so that they would fly into the Golden Triangle, which is highly suspicious, pick up drugs, take them to somewhere neutral like Holland, and then fly them out again using a different passport so that when they landed back in Australia with the drugs, it didn't look as if that person had been to the Golden Triangle. It looked as if they'd just been wandering around, you know, Berlin or somewhere. So very clever guy. And to do all that, he had to master all these international airline schedules, which were published in those days in these great big thick books. And he would scour these, memorise them, and work out how to coordinate this huge Rubik's Cube of international departure times so so that his couriers could bring stuff to Australia. He creamed it. You know, I think um, gold was worth $26,000 an ounce or something, and the drugs were worth 10 times as much. It was just an amazing, or 26,000 a pound or whatever and he had so much money this young man in Melbourne he would walk around the CBD at a time when you could buy a, when I, that the year that I bought a house for $26,000 he was walking around with plastic bags with 60 and 70 grand in them and when the police finally caught up with him Every house they went to had bags full of money that he'd forgotten about. Anyway, he was charged along with Sullivan eventually, and there was, an, I think, an eight-month trial, and there were, say, 15 charges or something, a lot of charges, and they only went down on one. 
it was sort of a, one of those tricky prosecutions where in the end he got done for being a little bit pregnant. He just went down on the one. But the judge took the view that that one should take the place of the other 16 that were dismissed and gave him 17 years in the clink. He and Sullivan went to Pentridge, which was then the major jail in Victoria. And they uh, lived a healthy life. I think they they had a lot of money outside, so they were able to organise with the Builders Labourers Federation, whose boss, Norm Gallagher, was in jail, to build a, a pool inside, which was good. There was a swimming pool built inside with a donation. I think they were able to organise a commercial-grade kitchen to be built at the jail by organising donations from outside, which was good because they could cook good food. But sadly, when Michael Sullivan, the champion former pole vaulter, applied for a pole so he could practice pole vaulting, the authorities said, no, we don't want a bloke who can jump a 16-foot wall. (laughs) So he didn't get his pole vault in. But what Macmillan did is um, he organised, because he was this sort of Ocean's Eleven character. He just was larger than life and he always had a plan. And his plan to get a Pentridge was not to sit there and behave himself and get out early, which he could do because he was a model prisoner. His plan was to organise a former SAS rogue pilot with a few bad personal habits to hijack a helicopter and fly to Pentridge and come in and he, he and Sullivan would then put themselves on the helicopter and fly away into the sunset. And the plan was unbelievably Hollywood. It was, you know, in light of the Tony Mockbell escape many, many years later, this was very like that. What he was going to do was he had a semi-trailer lined up with a massive uh, ocean-going yacht on the semi-trailer and they were going to hop in the yacht and then a truck driver would drive the truck with the yacht on it all the way to Queensland or somewhere and they were going to launch it and sail away. And uh, that was the plan. But sadly... It went astray when the pilot indulged in a bit of uh, hanky-panky at a city hotel and the police got wind and they went there and they they listened in to the phone and so on and they, the police caught them in the act and the helicopter plan never came off. But there was more in store for David because he served out his time, he served a minimum of time. But he went in in 82 or three. By 1991, they're giving him day leave because he was charming. He was smooth. He was polished. You couldn't help but like him, particularly when he was young and, you know, young and pretty. And he'd take his day leave and he wrote a piece for the Fin Review. I can remember it. He wrote a piece about what it's like to leave Pentridge and get on the tram and get on the train and and go to Bendigo and uh, see the sights. And he wrote this long piece, you know, 2,000 words or something, which is published in the Fin Review. This was the sort of contacts he had. And uh, he'd come back and, from day leave and so on. And, of course, he got out of jail as early as you possibly can. And he charmed everybody he met. But I was aware of his spotty past because I'd been a crime reporter. But I remember getting a call in 1993-ish from... Two people who were who met him, and one was John Clark, the late John Clark, and the other one was Brian Dore, who of course was John Clark's friend and collaborator, and they'd met the charming David McMillan, I think, down at Phillip Island, and they found him very interesting, which indeed he was. He's very interesting, and they said, "Look, he's got a lot to recommend him. He's so on, he's this and that," and um, they thought I'd be interested in him, which I was, but they were totally sort of on side with him. And I sounded a note of caution because I thought that, you know, he is a con man, so he's probably up to no good somewhere. 
And so I was a little bit cagey about sort of endorsing Mr. McMillan's adventures, which was good because the leopard doesn't change his spots. They just get bigger or smaller. And, of course, what happened with McMillan was he inevitably resumed his life of crime. The first thing he did was go to Thailand and organise a massive drug importation and get sprung. The world had changed while he was in jail in that 10 years. Everything had altered. There were now cameras and computers and all sorts of devices that he really wasn't clued into. And they were watching him and he was sprung with a large amount of heroin and he was sent to the place they call the Bangkok Hilton, which is a very, very bad jail, a very big jail and a very notorious jail, and, of course, they've made a film about it. He is one of the handful of Europeans in the Hilton, and he had enough dough and enough influence that he could sort of bribe his way into a better room and get carpets on the floor and, you know, cook his own food and all that good stuff. Very good at all that. Still had friends with money. He had a lawyer in Melbourne or an accountant in Melbourne who used to supply him with money. Uh, He always had friends... So he always had contacts in the legit world that would sort of help him, was the way it went. And David, of course, was not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs and cooking curries. David was working out how to get out of jail. And I won't go into all the details, but long story short, he carved a perfect pistol out of a piece of wood. He carved the a pistol with a silencer and he painted it black with shoe polish so that at night it would look like the real thing. And he was able... Through, very, through bribing this guy and organising that guy and getting somebody else to make a makeshift ladder and a whole complex series of, like a big chess game, he was able to organise to take some keys from a guard with this fake gun, then go to the next place and then get over a roof and then so on and so on and then get out over the wall and down and walk away from the prison. And he was the only European, I believe, ever to break out of the Bangkok Hilton he had the terrific advantage once he got out of being able to uh, pick up a false passport and go and get on a plane and fly far away to Europe to places that didn't have extradition treaties with Thailand. And for many years, he lived overseas, very conscious that he should never, ever go anywhere near Thailand because technically if he uh, landed there, they could take him back to jail and cut his head off or shoot him or whatever means of execution they use there because I think uh, technically it was a capital crime to do what he did and he never wanted to go back there and he didn't but needless to say he got himself into other trouble over the journey and he ended up doing time in India and (laughs) right through Europe, Germany, Scandinavia and back in England and last time I heard of him he was uh, getting out of jail in England and uh, said, I'm giving up, I won't be doing any more crime, which I don't believe. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Rule. You can read my column on this or other matters in the Sunday Herald Sun or on heraldsun.com.au. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. 
It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.